Welcome back to our building church. It's uh, good to be here with you all this morning to be together. We may uh, run into a few hiccups this morning with our technology, but we're working together to try to get it working as it should be. We have a memory verse for this month from 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight. We could say it together this morning. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight. I would like to thank specifically this morning three groups of people for the past three months of what has been a very unusual and trying time of ministry. First, I'd like to thank our staff. Uh, Our staff, our pastors, uh, they have done a fabulous job uh, with the resources that we have in making the necessary adjustments to be able to continue to produce content and stay connected with our people in this season. I'm very proud of every one of them. I'd also like to thank our elders. Our elders have put a ton of extra time and energy in in this season. Every one of them have been here for special meetings. Every one of them have had to be involved in very difficult decisions that were not easy to make. And throughout this season, I've just been uh, so proud and have felt so supported uh, by their love and by their care for this congregation in this season. And then finally, I'd like to thank all of you. Uh, what an unusual time to be in ministry. And I can't imagine none of us expected this coming into 2020, having to make the adjustments that we have had to make, having to move our ministries into online formats, having to do things that were probably, for many of us, largely uncomfortable and things that we never thought that we would ever do. And yet we, we've done it. Uh, you've done it. And it's been really amazing to see the participation online week in and week out and what that has meant through this season. There's some things that we need to celebrate as well. As of Wednesday morning this week, and I just heard a more recent number actually this morning, we have handed out over 140 boxes for virtual Bible school. And we made, yeah, that's something to celebrate because... In each of those boxes, some of those boxes only have an individual uh, kit, but some of those boxes had three or four children in one box. So we're talking, we are literally reaching hundreds of children this year through our virtual Bible school. And I think that's something that we should be celebrating. We've heard of communities that have invited uh, over 20 children to participate in backyard Bible school, and we're just thrilled for what our children's ministry team has done, the work that they've put into this, and we're looking forward to what the Lord's going to accomplish through this incredible week of ministry. So I'm celebrating uh, that reality, and I pray that you'll be celebrating that too, knowing that our children will be participating in that this week. Also, I want to let you know that beginning next week, we will have children's content available in our services that will run through the rest of the summer. So if you're bringing your children to service with you on Sunday morning starting next week, we'll actually have a children's message built into the service as well as note guides that are oriented and directed specifically for children and students. And so that'll be available starting next week. Today, today, believe it or not, after today, we only have 12 messages left 
in John's gospel. <laughs> it's amazing when you think about it. We, we are going to finish sometime in this October, this coming October. And when we are said, when it's all said and done through our study, we will have spent two and a half years over the course of 77 different sermons breaking apart and studying the book of John. Our first message in John was delivered all the way back on July 15th of 2018. And we are anticipating that the last message of the series will be delivered on Sunday, October 18th, 2020. And I'm excited to announce to you this morning that our next two series will be in the book of Ruth and then 1 Corinthians. And so when we finish John, we'll be spending eight weeks in the book of Ruth studying that book under the theme of steadfast love in a broken world. And then we will be heading into the book of 1 Corinthians. And I wanted to take a moment this morning and just answer this quick question before we dive into the text. Why do we choose at CNBC to preach through books of the Bible instead of topics or topical series? And I think it's a question that some have asked. I want to take a moment to address it this morning. And, and really, I think the answer to that question is we believe that the Spirit uses the preaching of God's Word verse by verse as we walk through these books of the Bible to accomplish and produce the fruit that He desires in the life of each believer. And we also believe that every tidbit, every little morsel of Scripture is equally inspired and wonderfully relevant to every single moment that we are living in. That means, friends, that we don't, we don't have to chase rainbows or what's culturally popular in our world today. We believe that the, world is go- the Word of God is going to expose those things as we preach through His book. The Spirit reveals the relevance of how we will live and apply the truths of God's Word in the current circumstances and situation that we are living in right now. And I think this was no more apparent. Isn't it amazing as we were going through Jesus' farewell discourse, we were away from one another, worshiping together in our homes. And I think it was uh, looking at Jesus' goodness and kindness as we walk through that in quarantine and isolation and the relevance of Jesus' example of how he lived and how he behaved when his world was spinning in so, such a different trajectory than maybe some would have expected before him. And, and I've said it before and I would say it again, I don't believe we have to dress this book up. I believe that it stands on its own. The Holy Spirit doesn't need our help, but thankfully... He chooses to use us. And so we teach line by line, scripture by scripture, verse by verse, life by life, because we know that on any given Sunday, the most powerful thing that all of us can hear is what comes out of the words on these pages and not out of my mouth. And so we're going to continue on in the book of John. We're opening John chapter 18 today. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn to John 18. And if you remember, we're studying John in light of the reason for why it was written. And John's book actually gives us a very clear, uh, compelling verse that tells us why he wrote. We've memorized it. We've read it many times. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing... 
you may have life in His name. So the questions that we want to address today is, what does John, in the passion narrative of his gospel, desire for us to know about Jesus so that we might believe and have life in His name? What encouragement is there for us in these verses today? How does Jesus respond in the face of betrayal? And what can we learn from his response that might help us to love, live, and lead for God's glory? And before we answer those questions, let's take a moment and ask God to bless our time. Father, indeed, we are thankful for your word. And we acknowledge this morning as we come around it together that this is a corporate activity that we are engaged in as a body of Christ. And we know that you are working even now. Your spirit is moving in the midst of us, in the hearts of every person who is here. And Lord, there is truth in this text today that you desire for us to take and apply in our lives. Today we get to witness the example of your son, Father, the way that he lived when he was faced with betrayal, when he was faced with persecution, when those who were closest to him doubted him. How did he respond? And Lord, we get to see that today. You expose that before us in this text. And so my prayer, Father, as we open these words, is that we would be motivated by the example of your son, Jesus, and that his example would compel us to love those that you place in our pathways this week. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. John chapter 18, verses 1 to 12. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. This is Thursday evening, friends. It's the Thursday night before Jesus' crucifixion. And we often forget to realize that his betrayal and his trial and the abuse that he went through and the death that he died, they happened in such a small window of space and time. Not only is it Thursday evening, but it is the Thursday evening before Passover. And if you think back just yesterday, Wednesday, 
in the course of this week, Jesus was on his way with his disciples to Jerusalem. And you remember the scene, I believe it's in the Gospel of Luke, he gathers his disciples around a withered fig tree. You remember that scene? And he gives an illustration of Israel's current spiritual state. Then in the afternoon, Wednesday afternoon, we know he ascended up onto the Mount of, Mount of Olives. And he gave a discourse predicting both his death on the Passover and his betrayal. Thursday morning, this current day now, we might suspect that Jesus and his disciples were preparing the Passover lamb together. Then he participated in a traditional Jewish Seder feast. Following this meal, together with his disciples, they moved towards the Garden of Gethsemane. So here we are, friends. We're in the garden the night before Jesus is crucified. Now you can see on the screen behind me a picture of this map. And whenever we see the city of Jerusalem, people have often asked me, how do you describe the size of Jerusalem? What are we looking at when we look at that picture? And many of us are familiar with the college campus. And I would tell you, Jerusalem was about the size of a small college campus. As it grew bigger, it would be a larger college campus. But here it's probably about the size of a small college campus. And so you can see the blue box, the Garden of Gethsemane, and you can see from Thursday to Friday where Jesus would have gone across the city before he would have arrived in Golgotha. So what is happening? What is going on here in the garden on this faithful evening? And verse 2 alerts us to the knowledge of Jesus' betrayer. Look at verse 2 of the text. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. You see, this was not a new location for Jesus' ministry, especially during the Passover. Judas knew where Jesus would be. His betrayer had an intricate knowledge of Jesus' ministry patterns and his routines. And friends, this betrayal, I believe it's an alarming reminder to us that so often the people who betray us and hurt us the most are the ones who are closest to us. And isn't it amazing that their betrayal can be so effective and so painful because of the fact that they're so acquainted with our patterns and our routines. Judas knew exactly where Jesus would be on this night. And our betrayers, friends, often they're the people that know where they can find us. They know exactly what words to say or what actions to do to wound us. And there are saboteurs, friends. I call them saboteurs. There are saboteurs in the church today. We can't afford to bury our head and pretend like they do not exist. Jesus talks emphatically about the presence of wolves. There are some who seek to harm and cause division. And they know how to attack. They know where to attack. They know when to attack. And often they're so effective because they've been part of us or have been with us closely. Now look how Judas behaves in the text. He, he is a man who truly shows by his actions that he does not truly understand or know Jesus. If he would have truly known Jesus, he would have known that he did not need this parade of fools to come and to help bring Jesus to the people that wanted to arrest him. Jesus was not looking 
for a fight. At least not a physical fight. Look at verse 3. Judas, having procured a band of soldiers, some officers from the chief priests, the Pharisees, they all went with lanterns and torches and weapons. Judas is coming as if he is going to be confronting a band of criminals. Not the Lamb of God. Think of the drama of this charade. And Judas has built for himself quite a group of followers here. Some probably that he paid off, yes. But others that just willfully followed to see what would happen. And friends, isn't this often how division works? I see it work this way, and perhaps you've seen it work this way in the church. There's a charade, a party of characters that gets pulled together to go after another person or a ministry. And this is what's happening here. We're seeing it right now. It's happening to Jesus. And if it happened to Jesus, who was perfect and sinless, I mean, everything Jesus said, he said from God. And if it happened to him as the perfect and sinless Savior of the world, perhaps it would be short-sighted for us to believe that it might not happen to us as well. I mean, you have this scene, don't you? It's kind of like the scene out of Beauty and the Beast. You know, the song that, that killed the beast and everybody's getting their pitchforks and their lanterns and they're going up to the castle. And that's kind of the scene that we have here. Roman soldiers are going, what did Roman soldiers have to do with Jewish issues? But they're going along. They're going along here with Judas. Officers, the chief priests had their own security. And they send their security along with Judas. Even some of the Pharisees go along to see what's going to happen. And so here we have, isn't this really amazing, this odd compilation of government and religious leaders all banded together coming for Jesus. It shows that the hatred of Jesus truly had crept not only into the religious ranks, but also into the government ranks. How would Jesus respond what would his example be for us? And it's interesting in verse 4, one of the things that you'll notice is missing from John's narrative. You don't read it in this narrative. It's almost like he skips completely over it. What don't we see from Judas in this narrative? What's missing? Kiss, right? Nothing about Judas's kiss here. Look at verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek see jesus knew in fact we know that jesus knew all things that would happen to him he knew perfectly what was in man we see this as early as john 1 but specifically in john verses two, uh, chapter 2 verses 24 to 25 it says but jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man and there's this beautiful reality in john's gospel uh, that he's so quick all throughout the book to lean into the perfect knowledge of jesus there is nothing hidden from jesus not even in his own betrayal he is in complete control here and so jesus steps forward and he asks a question that once again is another example of the gospel's powerful unity in john 1 the very first words out of jesus's mouth in john 
John's gospel is a question. John, John chapter 1, Jesus specifically asked this question. It's the first words from his mouth in the gospel of John. What are you seeking? What are you seeking? Now as we near his crucifixion, the question is no longer a question of what, but now it's a question of who. Whom do you seek? The disciples had found what they were seeking in the person of Jesus. They had believed. And I wonder if after watching Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, if what happens next in verses 5 and 6 even caught them off guard at all. Those seeking to arrest Jesus, isn't it ironic, they knew the name of the man that they were seeking. They knew Jesus' name. But by their actions, we can see that they didn't truly know him did they look at verse 5 5 and 6 they answered him jesus of nazareth jesus said to them i am he judas who betrayed him was standing with them when jesus said to them i am he they drew back and fell to the ground i love that john mentions that judas is standing with jesus's captors here John, he really wants us to see that Judas was going to experience this powerful manifestation of Jesus' power and glory. And I'm reminded of a popular song. Perhaps some of you have heard it before. It's a song that's motivated from the book of Psalms and the book of Isaiah, but it starts out, At your name, the mountains shake and crumble. And again, here is this powerful usage of the... Jesus using the word, I am. It's not only seen one time in verse 5 and one time in verse 6, but also one time in verse 8. And isn't it amazing, friends? Falling to the ground was the proper response of anyone in the Old Testament when they were found in the presence of God. We go back and look in the Old Testament of all the accounts when the prophets come face to face or or come into the presence of God and see their posture falling to the ground. It's as if his captors, if they would not bow on their own strength, they would be overcome by the deity of Jesus and his power and glory and bow because it was for his own name's sake. Philippians chapter 2 verse 10 comes to mind, doesn't it? So that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And now the reality, friends, of what is truly happening here starts to become clear, doesn't it? Jesus wasn't falling into their hands. They were falling into His. It's important to note this, church. Jesus is no victim. Jesus is no victim. He's a victor. He's victorious. And really, isn't what we're witnessing here a beautiful illustration of Jesus' humility? I mean, honestly, humility is a word that gets misused and, and probably misunderstood more than any other word these days. We so often forget that the meaning of humility is actually power under control. With one word or one motion of his hands, every one of the captors that had come for him, 
would have died on the spot. If it would have been the will of God, he could have done that. He could have absolutely done that. Destroyed the entire party. But he's fully in control. He's fully wanting to fulfill the will of God for his life. His emotions, his response. There's a powerful example for us here, friends. The same power that's at work in Jesus in this very moment is alive and at work in us. And while our betrayers and our captors, they might not physically crumble and fall to the ground, we can stand before them unashamed, unaccused, and victorious because of Jesus' work on our behalf. Romans chapter 8, verses 33 to 34 Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. What confidence we can have, church. Paul says that we can heap burning coals on the laps or the heads of our enemies. Look at Romans chapter 12, 19 and 20. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals onto his head. Church, what an unshakable spirit we have been given. We cannot be shaken. We are not of this world. It's amazing. Early in the book of John, everybody's coming to Jesus asking, uh, where are you going? What are you doing? Uh, How can I see this? How can I see that? What do they all want? They all physically want to see the kingdom of God. But his kingdom, as he says to Pilate in the verse we're going to look at next week, his kingdom is not of this world. Friends, Hebrews chapter 12, beautiful passage of Scripture, 26 to 29. I just want to look at verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Friends, get ready. Get ready. Betrayal is coming. Persecution is is coming. Some of us in here have already experienced these things. We will be treated unfairly. We will at some point in our life be wrongly judged, be harshly criticized, be mocked. Some of us may endure abuse, neglect, ridicule, torment. But take heart. Ours is an unshakable kingdom. An unshakable kingdom. Believers in Jesus have no need to fear, to shudder, to draw back, to fall. We cannot fall. If our lives are already laid prostrate before Him as a living sacrifice, how can we fall? So we can stand boldly, church. Have confidence. We can smile in the face of our accusers because we cannot be shaken. His church goes forth unshackled, unhindered, unaffected by what's going on. So encouraging to hear about Jason uh, talking this morning about the sovereignty of God 
over what we're experiencing in our world today. He has not lost control. His church has not lost control. Friends, he is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Period. Nothing. Nothing. Friends, let's not be victims. Victim mentality is so pervasive in our culture today. It permeates everything. It's that idea of this person's doing this to me and we get this mentality that we're a victim and we're being victimized because of the government or because of this or because of that. Friends, we are of an unshakable kingdom. No one can victimize us. Nothing that is given to us in Christ can be taken away by any human government here on earth. And the reality is the only thing that will last and will remain when we are finished on this temporary stopping place, the only thing that will last is that which we've been given in Christ Jesus. Our eternity is secure. Our kingdom is unshakable. We can move boldly together into whatever horizons Jesus is leading us towards. And now while this demonstration of Jesus' glory is both powerful and moving, what I love even more is that Jesus remains completely who He is. He acts according to His very nature. And watch how He demonstrates love and care and compassion. Look at verse 8. This is Jesus demonstrating who He is. Verse 8. I told you that I am He. So if you seek Me, what does He say? Let these men go. Again, he, here Jesus is faced with incredible personal turmoil and pain. And any of us in a similar position, we would want people to be with us in that moment. To be together with us. And Jesus is saying, look, these men are innocent. Let them go. He's their good shepherd. And as their good shepherd, he's always protecting and always guarding his sheep. Never, even for one moment, does Jesus fail in his delight of keeping his sheep. And so, friends, I find myself, and I would trust you would find yourselves motivated and compelled by this moving example of compassion and humility and sacrificial love. He's not worried about himself. Let these men go. I'm okay. Take me. I think... What's interesting here is that we have a clear contrast that actually breaks up this narrative in verse 10, don't we? How Jesus responds and how Peter responds to this adversity are very different, aren't they? And while we desire to behave like Jesus, I'm sure if you were asked the question today, which one would you rather behave like, Jesus or Peter? Every one of us would say, Jesus. But how many of us act like Peter? Me? I'm going to point my finger right to myself because I, I, I'm a Peter. And, and that's, that's what we're seeing here, this contrast. And how often have you wanted to take the sword and just hack away at the problems in your life, right? Just hack away. We demonstrate the same attitude as Peter when we're quick and hasty trying to fix our problems. I, I get into this all the time at home, guys. Just being right out in the open with you when my wife comes to me at the end of a hard day with a a lot of cares and concerns what do you think my first response is get out the sword hack away let's try to fix it does she want the problems fixed 
Women, help me out. Does she want the problems fixed? No. She wants me to listen. She wants me to be compassionate. She wants me to be empathetic. She doesn't want me to jump in like Peter and pull out my sword and go hacking away at all the things she's sharing. But that's my first response. My response is to manipulate and to control these environments I find myself in that I can't control. And isn't it very interesting in our text today? Jesus uses his words while Peter uses a sword. And the reality is one is far more powerful than the other. And it may not be the one that you expect. There's this scene, a beautiful scene in the book of Revelation where Jesus is returning on his great white stallion. The image is of this mighty ruler, this mighty general coming back, leading his army. And he has a sword. But do you remember where the sword is coming from? Where is it protruding from? His mouth. The sword is protruding from his mouth. Revelation 19.15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword. Now, some of us like to maybe want to take 1915 literally and think there's literally this metal object coming out of his mouth. But right, we know this is talking about his words, which will strike down the nation. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. So it is believed in this instance that Peter had what was known as as a gladius sword. It's a common sword that people carried in the day. And the gladius sword was a sword that was used for stabbing, not for slicing. And so most scholars agree that it was Peter's intent to draw the sword and to stab the sword through the head of Malchus, killing him on the spot. But again, we see the sovereignty of God and God's hand all over this as God's sovereign hand moves the head of Malchus so that only an ear is severed. And you can think about it one of two ways. If Peter was coming out with the sword to stab straight ahead and Malchus moved his head one way or the other, you could see the sword coming up and swiping the ear. If he was pulling it to slice across the neck and Malchus moved his head down, you could see it coming across to take off the ear. But what's most important is how Jesus responds. When we try to solve problems by our own strength and our own power, Jesus has a response for us. Look at verse 11. Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Peter, you can't solve this problem by your own strength and effort. You are unable, you have no ability within yourself to correct what's going to happen to me. Let go of your grip, your self-perceived control, and let me do the work. Think about the way that our hands are when we hold a sword. Everybody grab a sword right now in your pew. Grab a sword and hold it. Grab a sword and hold it. How is your hand right now in your pew? And isn't this what we do? Isn't this how we try to control when things seem out of control? Now, how does Jesus kneel down, pick up an ear, and apply it 
back onto the head of Malchus. There's a lesson in leadership here, friends. There's a lesson in living life when things are out of control. We can lead like this, or we can lead like this. Jesus, open hands, no need to control or manipulate. He's already in complete control. He picks up Malchus's ear, gently places it back on his head, completely healing the wound. And oh, friends, isn't it true that we often create wounds when we so try so desperately to meet earthly problems with earthly power? You know, when, when I try to solve things by my own power and my own initiative, man, I mess it up so bad. I can't even begin to describe how bad I mess it up. It's always bad. My wife will tell you. When I lean into God's strength and His power, and when I rely on Him to accomplish His purposes and plans through me, I have no need to hold and control and grip and manipulate. No need. Just open up my hands and let Him guide and direct and move. Church, there is a heavenly power granted to us, living within us, at work through us. One who is at power, at work within us to meet and to move us through all of the circumstances and situations that He brings into our lives. We just have to live like it's real. To live like it's true. There is no physical fight in this text today, except for Peter. Jesus doesn't need to. John chapter 10, verse 18. He's living exactly what he told his disciples, isn't he? No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord, and I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. The band of soldiers and their captain, they surround Jesus. Jesus is going to take the cup that God had intended for him. What was that cup? It was the wrath that he was going to experience, the wrath of God that he was going to experience on the cross. And he was not going to experience that as a victim. He was going to be victorious over it. So as the curtain closes, Jesus is arrested and he's bound and will continue in his passion narrative as we pick up the next scene next week. So we might ask ourselves this question as we conclude today. How might our lives look in light of these realities? And friends, as I have worked through the farewell discourse the last numbers of week and weeks and then moved into this passage in John 18, I have been so moved and so compelled by Jesus' example. And the challenge for me has been to rest in His power and glory that's at work within us. His power is at work within us. Can I rest in it? Can I trust it? Does my life look like I trust that? I'm motivated by Jesus' example of humility and love and compassion when He's facing a difficult time in ministry, when His life is literally going to be taken from Him. He leads with humility, compassion, love. And he's a victor. And church, because he was victorious, we too can live in the victory that he has secured for us because of his great work on our behalf. Let's pray.
Father, it is so amazing to have this example before us. What an example of love and compassion. Your son is being arrested. He's being betrayed. Soon he'll be denied. He'll be lied about. He'll be spit on and beaten. And you've put it before us in these pages so that the Spirit can move and work in our lives and in our hearts in a way that might motivate us to love as He loved. He's a living example, Father, of how we can lay down our lives for one another. To love one another compassionately, sacrificially. What an example of a good shepherd that we have. Lord, it's our prayer as we prepare to move into ABF time together that you would compel us by the example of your son Jesus to live in a similar way. That his attitudes may become attitudes that are ours and that his actions may become actions that we follow. Lord, his behaviors would be motivating to us. And that we would desire when faced with the same exact circumstances or similar circumstances, being betrayed, being lied to, feeling like we've been stabbed in the back, that we might respond in the same manner that Jesus responded. That's our desire, Lord. We know that that's your desire for our lives, but at the same time, God, this is a very difficult way to live. We need faith. We need you to give us faith, to give us strength, to work through us, to help us to lean into the power that you've given us because we so quickly forget and neglect what a great salvation we've been given in your son, Jesus. So it is also our prayer this week that as we leave this place that you will continually remind us through the week of this attitude the attitude that your son demonstrated that should also be within us. Father, that we wouldn't be quick to talk about our rights, but we'd be quicker to lay them down as a sacrifice, knowing that there's nothing that can be taken from us here that you haven't given us in eternity. We're thankful for you. We're thankful for the example of your son. Help us grow in a greater love for you and a greater love for each other this week.